Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking with someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. And today my guest is a colleague or former colleague since I'm retired of mine down at Lincoln University, uh, Dr. Mara Argetti, uh, professor of psychology. Morning, Mara. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Or I guess now that the show is playing at five o'clock in the afternoon, I should say, well, good afternoon, Mara. <laughs> <laughs> good to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, these changes in our world, it's, it's great to adapt to change. And uh, KOPN is adapting to change. You're adapting. I'm adapting. Uh, that's, I think, didn't some famous person say uh, either you adapt or perish? And, uh, well. <laughs> so, Mara, you are still at Lincoln University. I retired. I am. We missed you. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I arrived there in 85, quite uh Kind of to my surprise, uh, when did you arrive at Lincoln University? I was there 10 years after you, so you were actually a relatively new faculty when I got there. Uh, yeah, I remember you well. You were well, well known by the students, and they had so many positive things to say about you, and every single student at Lincoln took your class. Not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> it was a required class. <laughs> many of them were not taking mine by choice either, because it was a... It, it was also a required class, but I started in 1995 and I was teaching um, at the time primarily uh, general psychology, but I was trained in physiological psychology oh. and I was fresh out of graduate school and I had completed all my education when I was fairly young. So I was a very young person walking in there in 1995. I was only 26 years old. And uh, so it was an interesting time because I was very close to the age of my students. Hmm. After now, you know, another 25 years, 26 <laughs> years, I, I have my students stayed the same age and <laughs> my age got more and more. So, But you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> it's been an interesting journey, you know, as uh, going through the uh, years of separating out age-wise. And now it's funny because I had a, a reception with students yesterday. And, I, you know, everything I, I learn about their lives, I mean, it's very new to me and it changes a lot, you know. I had a student tell me yesterday that uh, she only uses Twitter and Snapchat, <laughs> and I was like, "What about Instagram?" Because you know, cause, like last year, all the students were using Instagram. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I learned so much about their lives. You know, mm -hmm. so that's that's fun. Well, I have learned from talking and actually interviewing some of your former students that uh, you had a huge impact on their lives and still continue to have an impact. Uh, how did you? Hmm, Beyond just the classroom, how did you reach out to students and draw them into projects and things? Yeah, I, you know, I think I, I was kind of atypical as a, a 
a Lincoln instructor coming in because what um, Lincoln is a teaching institution, uh, primarily a teaching institution. So most of your work is going to be in teaching. That was always true at Lincoln. But what happened to me is I trained in a very heavy research basis. Hmm. So I I trained at the University of California and uh, it was a program that was there was no application whatsoever. So I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a researcher. I was trained as a researcher and I was trained as a grant writer. Oh, wow. And so the idea was after, you know, graduating from the University of California with the PhD that you would go out and get a job at a research one institution. And that was what my classmates all did. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to places like, you know, University of California, University of Missouri, University of Pennsylvania and whatnot. Um, but what happened to me is I was uh, involved in a personal relationship, uh, which made me come out to Missouri because my partner at the time was, you know, here. And so when I did that, I, uh, I I went ahead and looked for a job and found the job at Lincoln. And I thought, well, I, I can teach, or at least I can learn how to teach. You know? sure. So I started teaching and then, um, and I started loving it. I, I really, really loved teaching and I loved the students. And so, uh, you know, at the relationship that I came here for ended up uh, failing. And so I ended up staying anyway, largely because of the position at Lincoln and and many of the people that I met there as well. You, Kurt DeBoard, many of my students, you know, they became really important contacts for me. So anyway, to get to the answer to your question, because I had that different training, um, my inclination was to write grants. My inclination was to do research. And there was some need for that there. Yeah. Because many of our students were looking to, for example, go to graduate school or they needed help with funding school. And so they needed a job, but they needed a job that was relevant to their career. And so by writing grants, I was able to offer student positions, paid student positions. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so. You had a former guest, Precious Hardy, who who was in one of those positions, and I listened to your to your podcast with her. But that was how I ended up meeting her and many many other students. That said, I was offered, I was able to offer a paid position through federal grant money, mm-hmm. and then I was doing research with students, and I was uh, able to do you know write publications with students, which helped them to get into graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and get their own PhDs. So many of those students went on to graduate school or medical school or other other professional degrees. So, so it was just a kind of a, a lucky thing, you know. I mean, it's funny because the Research One institutions need teachers. They need good <laughs> teachers, you know, because there hasn't been enough attention to teaching. But the teaching institutions like ours need good researchers because mm-hmm. our students need you know, the research experience to be able to move on professionally a lot of times. And what I noticed and had the pleasure of attending a few was uh, once the research was done, you would have a a big uh, program and your students would be presenting the results of your uh, research and they'd have their posters up and and all kinds of uh, professional things. I think you even went in other cities, other schools to present. Yeah, yeah, we would go to meetings, uh, you know, attended meetings really all around the United States. You know, I took students to 
New York and Florida and, you know, all kinds of places, you know, mm -hmm. we were in, oh gosh, I can't even remember, Chicago, Indiana, you know, I mean, over the years I've taken students to all meetings everywhere oh. uh, and many, many meetings in Missouri and we had many at Lincoln as well. Mm -hmm. So we were able to, and, and again, that was federal grant money. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't been able to write those grants, that would not have happened. Right. Because Lincoln, as you know, has been chronically underfunded, and the and the the money that we have goes generally toward teaching and student support. But you know, again, we just didn't have the budget even set up to support research mm -hmm. and, and student research. So, so we were lucky to get those kind of grants. Um, to you know, be able to send students places, but yeah, my students were involved in all. And and, and the funny thing is, I finished graduate school, and it was just serendipity that I ended up at Lincoln. But what I was trained in specifically was primate behavior, so oh. non-human primates. Oh my! So I had actually done my dissertation on a, a small uh, South American species of monkey called a squirrel monkey. I don't know if you've ever, you've probably seen it in zoos, a little little tiny yellow monkey. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and they exist in Peru and Costa Rica and stuff like that. It's a new world monkey. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so here I was coming from researching animals to all of a sudden, like, there are no animals for me to research. Now <laughs> I'm going into researching humans and a lot of that research was born out of the ideas I learned from my students and what they were interested in you know um, much of it was also inspired by education itself being in a field of education so a lot of the research was about teaching and learning a lot of the research was on intercultural work and cross-cultural work in psychology because my students were uh, largely uh, and often primarily in psychology, uh, black students. Mm -hmm. And so they were interested in race and interested in diversity. And so a lot, a lot of the work uh, ended up being about that. So, so they gave me a lot of ideas, you know, and, yeah. and kind of directed my research in a way. Well, and Lincoln is one of the more diverse campuses uh, in the United States, about oh, almost 50-50 in terms of uh, yeah. people of color and and uh, yeah, yeah, right. It's mm -hmm. uh, slightly, I think, it's slightly in terms of the two big groups. So the two big groups are uh, African American and white population. Mm -hmm. um, we're just slightly uh, have a slightly greater number of African Americans, but that doesn't make up those two big groups. Don't make up our whole population. We also have a lot of diversity outside mm -hmm. of that. So mm -hmm. you know we have uh, Hispanic and Asian and Native mm -hmm. American students, and yeah, mm -hmm. we we've, we draw a, a huge catchment. You know, so yeah. it, it really as you know from being at Lincoln. There is a an education that happens outside of the classroom sure. that is about diversity. Mm -hmm. And when you when you go there and you stay there for a long time, you are changed in intercultural interactions. Right. You are a different person <laughs> than you were before you came generally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's certainly happened to me and, and I've seen it happen to both my black and white students there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You took a break from Lincoln though, didn't you? Did you end did. up at Stevens College here in Columbia for a while? How was that? 
Uh, well, Stevens was fine. Stevens was good. It was a different population, to be mm-hmm. sure. Um, Stevens has a lot of wonderful things. I was actually talking about um, Stevens College uh, yesterday with a colleague because we were talking about putting together these brown bag lunches about teaching. And I was remembering from Stevens that um, we would once a month, we would get together. I don't know if they still do it as a faculty there, but we would get together, we would bring our lunch and we would go to the seminar room and we would just talk about a topic in teaching. And prior to the meeting, they would uh, distribute an article. And some people read the article, some people didn't. You know, it was a kind of a loosey-goosey thing. But we would have these conversations about teaching. And I think um, that was a pretty amazing environment for, you know, uh, thinking about your own teaching and and finding new and innovative ways to to teach better, getting other people's ideas about teaching. And when I think about it now, because we were, I was talking to a dean yesterday at Lincoln, and he was talking about creating incentives for this kind of thing so that faculty would want to go to it and stuff like that. And I was remembering that at Stevens during those years, there were no incentives. People hmm. went just because they liked to talk about teaching. And maybe it was because we had the time, you know, this was back in the early 2000s, and maybe it's harder to find that time now. We're a little bit more overworked, you know, with everything that's gone on, uh, well, with COVID and many other uh, kinds of cutbacks in education, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I thought that there was, I had a kind of pure memory of Stevens College as just being a place where you could really flourish as mm-hmm. a teacher. And let me tell you that the funding at Stevens College, it was even worse than what we experienced at Lincoln and other public schools because it was private. Mm-hmm. So all of their money came from tuition dollars. Um, they didn't have half of the money coming from the state, you know, and so they they were struggling financially, but still there was this cadre of faculty who were really, really interested in teaching and learning, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I think that's something that um, through all of the cutbacks and everything, sometimes we lose focus on in education, you know, it's just finding that creative spirit to mm-hmm. improve what you do. Mm-hmm. You know? And as I recall at Lincoln, there were very few opportunities for faculty interaction. Very different atmospheres. Well, I tell you what, though, I do have it at Lincoln also. And you know what it's, you know what it is? It's called carpooling. Carpooling. (laughs) With other faculty from Columbia to Jeff City. Yes. And in those rides, in those carpools, we talk a lot. And that's that you develop some tight relationships with colleagues. But I think that, that especially now, you know, with the use of technology and stuff like that, when a meeting starts on Zoom, you just start that meeting. You know what I mean? You don't uh, have time to chit chat. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, you get right to the agenda. Well, let me introduce you again to listeners uh, listening today to Glocal News and Social Artistry on KOPN, your community radio station here in Columbia, Missouri. My guest today is Dr. Mara Argetti, a professor down at Lincoln University in psychology, and also uh, really uh, an international researcher. And Mara, in our conversation on the phone, you just opened up windows that, uh, gee, again, how did I miss this when we were colleagues uh, working together for 15, 20 years? that you had all these research interests way beyond uh, just the working with students. Uh, Can you 
expand on where that's taken you? Well, I'm 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 nearing a hundred empirical articles now. Wow. <laughs> published. And I, you know, I, I never thought I would be there. And I'm telling myself, you know, that you're working a too much, so it's time to slow down huh. on the research, you know, because that's one thing I can certainly slow down on. But it, it's been a prolific career. Much of it has been with students, but it's also been with uh, various other researchers and, and uh, as you mentioned, really around the world. So, um, and technology has made that possible, which has been wonderful. So I met a guy, this tells you something about professional development. Lincoln sent me to a conference in Florida years ago, probably, um, well, it was in 2001 oh. I met him. Mm -hmm. And I met a guy there. I was presenting a paper, and he came up afterwards and, and said, hey, I liked your work, and you know, we started chit-chatting. And he was a real nice guy, and he said, maybe we can do some work together. And so he was in Florida, I was here, and you know, he was like, well, we got email, this is 2001, <laughs> so yeah. we weren't using Zoom, you know. But uh, we started doing some work together, and he introduced me to an area he was interested in, which was uh, celebrity worship. Celebrity and, worship? Yeah. Oh my goodness, okay. And so this is the concept that people are, so many people are attached to celebrities, or they like celebrities, um, but, most people will like celebrities for entertainment purposes. Like if I if I asked you, Dick, who's your favorite celebrity? Could you name one? No. Okay. <laughs> You're like me. <laughs> Some of us are just not attached to celebrities at all. But people who like celebrities mostly have a mild attachment to them in the sense that they just use them for entertainment kind of thing. And they like to follow, you know, some details of their lives, but not too obsessionally. And then there are people who kind of obsess about the details of celebrities' lives and they get really, really into it, hmm. celebrities' lives. Mm -hmm. And so those we call the celebrity worshipers. Okay. And it's it's got some... Uh, similarities to religious worship, so the 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 name you know is is not uh, ill chosen there. Okay. <laughs> the uh, celebrity becomes sort of this symbol of of something to be worshipped or beholden, or you know, as a symbol of perfection in a lot of ways. So we started looking at celebrity worshipers and looking at some of the psychological uh, traits that go along with celebrity worship. And so that has been a 20-year research program. Wow. And now about, I think, maybe 25 or so articles later um, that we mm. published on that, um, we've found out a lot of interesting information about uh, folks who are really, really into celebrities. So how do you get that information from individuals? Lots of ways you can do the research. And um, so, for example, there's like fan mail research where people actually analyze the letters of fans and they do kind of a content analysis. Hmm. Uh, we used primarily uh, a scale called the Celebrity Attitude Scale. And on that, you would name your favorite celebrity and then you would answer a bunch of questions about that celebrity. And then depending on your score on the scale, we could see whether you were in that kind of obsessive, 
intense pathological sort of range. And I say pathological because it's associated, a, a high level of celebrity attachment is associated with a number of psychological problems. Mm-hmm. One, one issue is materialism. The value of materialism mm-hmm. uh, is very, very strong in those who worship celebrities. It's a real clear connection that we found over and over again. So this idea of, um, uh, of acquiring things, hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and so I think you know, just out of relevance to to your podcast, um, mm-hmm. that results in a compulsive buying and uh, just kind of rampant consumerism. Hmm. And some of that has to do with the the celebrity themselves. So I mean, you you probably heard in psychology of the concept of of downward comparison versus upward comparison. So uh, actually not. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. It's just what it says. Yep. It is. If I compare myself to someone who has less than me, oh, then I feel privileged mm-hmm. and I feel good about what I have. Mm-hmm. If I compare myself to someone who has more than me, which is the upward comparison, then I feel deprived. Okay. So, for example, if you look at your own salary versus someone who makes much more money, mm-hmm. you feel deprived. But if you look at your own salary versus someone who makes much less, then you feel pretty good. You feel mm-hmm. rich, right? Okay, so got it's it. It's a kind of relative sense of you know deprivation. And so if you are um, quite interested in celebrities, they will always have more than you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they put you in kind of a constant state of longing. Hmm. And and it's longing largely for material things, but also we see it in, for example, body dissatisfaction. We see a lot of body dissatisfaction. We see a lot of um, cosmetic surgery and attitudes toward cosmetic surgery among people who worship celebrities is very positive, tends to be positive. Mm-hmm. And so we also see a lot of um, depression, anxiety, which again would go with that upward comparison um, and, mm-hmm. and, and other psychological problems. And one of the things we see is, is uh, relationship problems as well. So a kind of a lack of intimate relationships. And, and part of this has to do with the relationship with the celebrity as well, which we call a parasocial relationship, which just means a one-sided relationship. Mm. So you and I have a, a regular relationship in the sense that you know me, you know things about me, and I know things about you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what will happen in the case of the celebrity is the fan will know everything about the celebrity, but the celebrity knows nothing about the fan. Ah, uh, yes. Uh-huh. So we call that parasocial relationship. Mm-hmm. And that type of relationship can feel very intimate for the fan. Ah. Can feel very intimate. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, it might be kind of a compensation for a lacking of a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. So you have subjects, uh, I guess, in research. Uh, how do you find subjects for something such as this particular mm-hmm. research? Well, back in the day, you might remember that I was always passing around surveys. Yes, <laughs> yes. 
So I would do surveys of classes, you know, and so I would try to get students to participate and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, sometimes I do survey my own students, but I'll use a Google form or a survey monkey or something like that. So the data gets automatically inputted into an Excel file. It certainly makes it easier for the researcher and also easier for, for the student who's just clicking on a link. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I have not been surveying my own students for many years. And the reason why is because we started using a crowdsourcing platform um, that was put together by Amazon, and it's called MTurk or Mechanical Turk. And what it is, is people register for it and they fill out surveys for money. Hmm. Wow. And there are people all over the world that are doing this, filling oh out surveys for money. And so they might make, you know, depending on how long the survey is, they might make 25 cents if it's a real short survey or a dollar or whatever. And so you can pay, you know, a small amount, really, it's not that much, you know, for, a, you know, I mean, if you've got maybe 500 people in your study, it is, you know, you might pay $400 or $500 tops, um, probably a lot less than that to get your participants. And it happens instantaneously. So if I put oh. a survey out there today, I could have 400, 500 participants by tonight. Now, what's nice about those participants <laughs> is that they come from all over the world. So oh. we have a global population. We also have a lot more age diversity. We have a lot more educational diversity. Um, you can, you know, if you're doing, let's say, a, a project on uh, LGBTQ plus population, you could specify just those participants um, who identify as LGBTQ. So it's it's kind of convenient that way. That said, it supports Amazon. <laughs> what crazy. what doesn't these days? It seems <laughs> right. You can't do anything. Well, I have a, a question just from that. Have you ever surveyed the people that that do surveys for money? Is that a type of person in themselves? Yes. Actually, I did a study uh, recently where we compared, it was just a methodological study where we compared participants on MTurk versus mm -hmm student participants in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And we found that in fact, um, the MTurk uh, workers will fill out a survey extremely rapidly. Because <laughs> it makes sense, they're making money, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that therefore they often don't read the questions very carefully. So if you put in, we put in what we call validity checks where, you know, we say, well, it's, it's not possible to do this survey in less than three minutes. So, so then we throw out the ones that, you know, the responses of those that did it in less than three minutes. And sometimes we'll ask a question that um, says, I'm just, it's a fictional question, but we say something like, I love celebrities, strongly agree to strongly disagree. And then later on in the survey, we'll say, I hate celebrities, strongly agree, strongly disagree. And if if they are answering different things mm -hmm. on those, then we assume that they weren't reading the question. Right. Me. So right. then 
So it's really important to have these validity checks so we can kind of filter out on mm -hmm. uh, MTurk. What, uh, but you know, I mean, there were always problems with the system of getting participants, sure. and you know, getting getting the students. You know, I think in some ways, you know. Uh, has been criticized as being ex exploitative of the students, right? And also uh, that the samples, the research samples weren't very good because everybody was highly educated or at least college educated. Everybody was in the same age range. You know, they were from particular backgrounds if they were students as well. So, you know, now we have a more diverse sample with MTurk, but it's got its problems as well, you know, mm -hmm. so. And and I can tell you that, you know, there's lots of, of talk about uh, MTurk being, uh, you know, a platform that exploits workers as well, because while you can get you know, make money on MTurk, you can't get benefits on MTurk. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're not going to get health insurance on MTurk, you know what I mean? Uh, it's all a kind of individual arrangement. We would call this supplemental. Yeah, yeah. hopefully, <laughs> although I'm sure there's plenty of people who are trying to live off of it. Well, there you go, so yeah. I think it's it's got its problems. So you mentioned earlier that you also have some connections with other folks around the world in research. In our conversation last night, you mentioned a person in Iran, various places. Can you just kind of dance through some of those? Uh, and well, can we tie a little bit of that into building a more humane world? Are, are your findings going to be helpful to yeah, yeah. something? Or, or is it just a curiosity and here's an answer? Uh, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. Well, you know, I think I found I found myself at, at various times uh, kind of falling into, uh, you know, research here, or research there, based on what other people were interested in. Um, but I think one thing that has uh, tied much of the research together is psychological health, because mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist and the yeah. people I work with are psychologists, and and also social justice issues. And so I think that that's those are two those have been really two big threads in research. Um, we I've been working uh, most recently. I was I met during COVID early on in COVID. I was doing research on I was doing some research on celebrities, and there was a guy who was also doing research on celebrities in Iran, and he contacted me. Um, he's at the University of Tehran. Mm -hmm. And his name is Reza. And he and I became very good friends. Uh, we started working together. And uh, and at the time, we were doing work on COVID-19 anxiety, anxiety about the virus. And so we published a couple of different papers on anxiety about the virus. And then Reza is like amazing when it comes to technology. And he's a young guy. He's like 28 years old. Mm -hmm. and he's got a master's degree. And he, I, I don't know if this is reflective of the education in Iran in, uh, in statistics. I don't know if it's just Reza being amazing, but mm -hmm. he has got a statistical knowledge that rivals any PhD I've ever seen really oh, wow. amazing statistical knowledge and also knowledge of programming and um and you know creation of websites and apps and all this stuff so he they had developed an app 
which was a, uh, and you saw probably some of these going around during COVID. It was kind of like a self-help app for people who were suffering from a lot of anxiety or depression at home. And so he developed that, we tested it, mm. um, and we found that it was quite effective. Oh. Um, people who were suffering from a lot of uh, depression and anxiety, particularly over COVID, had certain things in common. One is that they were getting kind of obsessional about COVID news and news mm -hmm. in general. Right. And I don't, you remember those times. Mm -hmm. I mean, Trump was president mm -hmm. here. Um, they've had their own difficulties politically in Iran, and mm -hmm. so our, we have we have a number of participants coming from Iran as well. And so, uh, and all of a sudden, the world was being enveloped by mm -hmm. this disease, and it was popping up here and popping up there, and different variants. And at the time, there was no vaccine, mm -hmm. so some people um, started really, really focusing on online news ah. and that eventually we started realizing that that was connected with anxiety mm -hmm. and then later on we did another study on online news addiction what we called addiction which was a kind of obsessive compulsive need to check online news mm -hmm. and it a lot of that has been increased by um a bunch of kind of news sources coming out that we didn't we didn't have before for example you might have a news app that provides you news updates on your phone do you mm -hmm. get that yeah i do yeah where it suddenly pops up like when when como resigned the other day i, I was actually in a meeting at lincoln and somebody showed me their phone <laughs> show me the headline you know what i mean at real-time pop-ups of news and then probably you see when you get on a google search or something a bunch of stories news stories below that it's always suggesting some news for you right right and so if you for example were to search COVID-19 or look at even look at an article that had been suggested to you, then it will feed you more because right. it's all algorithmic driven, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we found is that some people were getting into this kind of rabbit hole of, you know, COVID-19 news and it was increasing anxiety uh, quite a bit. So that was what he and I had started working on. But he's a very young guy, as I mentioned, he's like 28 years old. And so his interests were different than mine. And we started getting into um, the concept of being a social media influencer. So oh. you know, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes they, they call it Insta famous or- you, um, How many followers you have, things exactly, like that. Yeah. Exactly, and it's not just followers. What happens uh, with some people is they start making money off social media, but you have to build the followers first, mm -hmm. and then you start endorsing products or having product placement in your in in your uh, feeds. Right. Even embedded in many of the videos are you know product placements or or endorsements, and it could be somebody wearing a hat with a logo on it. You don't ah. even notice that it's there, hmm. or a, you know a particular brand or type of thing that's on the desk or something, you know, they're drinking a soda. So, so at any rate, what happens is companies will pay you a lot um, sometimes if you do have a huge bunch of followers. 
but you have to build the followers first. Right. And so what we found is that many, many young people, and I'm talking about about two thirds of a sample of college students mm. are aspiring to be social media influencers. Oh, they want to be a social media influencer. Mm -hmm. They desire to be a social media influencer. And so the question is why? Well, they're they're doing what they love. They love social media. They love making videos. They love entertaining, you know. And so for many of them, they're just doing what they love. But some of what's happening there is what has been called in the literature, hope labor. Mm. And this is the idea that one would work for free for a while to reap the monetary rewards later. Mm -hmm. So you and I had that when we were growing up, if you did an internship, for example, you could volunteer and do an internship, put in your time, work real hard, and then later on you might get a much better job, mm -hmm. right? right? But it's also been a bit insidious, uh, especially for marginalized groups, because you can probably imagine as we were growing up, some people, um, thought they were going to be great sports stars or they were going to make it big with their music and they were going to get signed by a you know a label and make all this money that much of that was hope labor as well and you say well what's wrong with that they're developing themselves musically or they're developing you know their talents or something like that the problem with it what we found is that in fact it leads to a, a lower values on education Oh, and so you you think that the way you're going to make it in life financially and and career wise is to develop your social media skills? Education takes a back seat. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so in in that sense, it's somewhat insidious, you know. And what we found is that people they often think that they that a uh, social media influencer often breaks out with a viral video, right? Okay. And so the idea is, is that if you can make that viral video, if you can get enough people to see, and so you've got to constantly be in this production mode mm -hmm. where you're putting out stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to do it, mm -hmm. you know? So, so in that sense, it's, it's, I think, worrisome, a little worrisome. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, let me take another break and uh, announce uh, to our listeners that this is Glocal News in Social Artistry uh, on KOPN, your community radio station. I'm Dick Dalton, the host. My guest today is Dr. Mara Argetti, a psychology professor down at Lincoln University. And uh, we're talking about uh, not only teaching, but a lot of research that Mara is doing. And and we just uh, mentioned this hope uh, what was the second hope, word? Hope labor. Hope labor. And I don't know why, but instantly my mind went to a farmer. Mm -hmm. Hope labor. They they have all this stuff that they do to the ground and get the seeds and get the machinery and all this. And they every spring, you know, it's <laughs> they're hoping that the conditions will be good enough. Yes, and, and, and the similarity there is the uncertainty. Yeah. So you don't know if you're going to make it. You don't know if there will be a drought. You don't know if there will be a flood. And that is what's going on with Hope Labor, is there's a, a huge amount of uncertainty. 
mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you're working very hard, so you're putting in a lot of time with this idea that you're going to reap these benefits, but you, you're uncertain whether you will. And what we find in, you know, if you look at the studies on social media influencers, show that the privileges of being white, being wealthy, things like that are actually there in who makes it as a social media influencer. Hmm. Because the perception is that, in fact, you just you're you're an everyday person. It was kind of like, you know, those shows like American Idol and The Voice and all of that promoted this idea that you're an everyday person who suddenly gets the spotlight and then you shine and everyone loves you. But the truth is that people who are social media influencers had the backing, had the support largely of parents Hmm. who were willing to help with that. And so we get children, for example, who are social media influencers. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, it's the, this army of you know parental support behind mm-hmm. them that's helping a lot. So so you know, and, and again, some people are excluded from those roles, mm-hmm. um, or at least they're less likely to become social media influencers. So in that sense, the hope remains alive, right? Mm-hmm. It was true when we were growing up in in many respects, and I'm sure you knew people who wanted to, you know, become great sports stars and had these, you know, fame. The the idea was to get famous Mm. in something, Mm. right? They were going to get famous in sports. They were going to get famous in music. Back in my day, I would hang around with a lot of musicians, and they all thought they were going to break out, get signed, go to L.A., you know what I mean? And what we found is that, you know, in fact, for the most part, that did not happen, right? And then as they grew older, they got more realistic goals. And, and that's okay. Maybe that's just a developmental stage in some ways. But the point is here that so many young people are interested in becoming social media influencers. What we found is that it detracts from, from in their minds, the value of education because mm-hmm. they see that as a road you know, to success. So education has uh, its problems in financing. Uh, you go into debt and you read every day about school debt and you know people that are still paying off 40 years later their their school debt. Uh, so our, our world just seems to be fraught with uncertainty. And uh, is this just a, a new way to, um, <laughs> I don't know, uh, feel like you're doing something? Yeah, yeah. And to maintain hope, right? Yeah, and to maintain hope, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but the thing is, is that and I, I think what's interesting about it that we found uh, is that the perception is that it should be easy to become a social media influencer. So many young people think that it's it's an easy road to go hmm. you know what I mean? once you get that viral video. And but yet they are putting in a lot of work, but they don't see it as work. They see it as sort of recreational, though. If you watch them do it, you can see that mm-hmm. it's actually quite serious work. You know what I mean? And you know what it's like to produce a show. Uh, you've got to have equipment. You've got to have, you know, a, a knowledge of how to use it. You've got to edit things together in ways that make sense. You know, so it's work. 
Um, but they're, they're, but they're thinking that once they get that perfect video, that viral video, snap, there it goes. Mm-hmm. The difference between that and education is education. There's no doubt you're going to be toiling for four or five years just to get a bachelor's degree. And then as one of my students told me yesterday, one of my new students, she said, I'm not sure you can do anything with a bachelor's degree anymore. <laughs> she said, you need a master's or a PhD or something like that. And I think in many ways that has become true. You know, what used to be the high school degree is now the bachelor's degree. And so you're competing mm-hmm. with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I do think things are getting better in the labor market, uh, Dick. And I think we're, it's, it's hopeful what, what we're looking at right now, um, which is higher wages. Uh-huh. But we also do have higher inflation, and that's uh, uh, you know zeroing out the gains there. So mm-hmm. I think it's good that people can choose jobs and that they can demand more uh, now, and they have more choices. Uh, that's also been hard on on local businesses and smaller businesses as well. So how that will all pan out? But I, I tell you what, since the 1970s, we have not seen a, a labor market like this with wages. Uh, I think, you know, increasing. Uh, well, I, I think uh, the, the news yesterday was that there are two million jobs available. Yeah. That they're even having trouble filling. They're uh, having trouble filling, and because of that trouble filling, they are increasing the wages. Uh-huh. To try to draw the, the people to get the job, yeah. 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 So it's kind of a... A worker's market, so to speak. It is a worker's market, but who knows if it'll last and who knows how inflation, which is the price of goods, will, uh, you know, in fact, take care of that bigger salary. Right. So as you, uh, as a psychologist, look around the world, uh, are there any uh, insights that you have as to uh, how we're doing, uh, where we're going, do you have a, a way to put your finger on the pulse of the way people behave and think and feel? Are we trending this way or that way? Uh, just uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I wish I had a hopeful answer on that. Well, I could say something hopeful. <laughs> the job market for psychologists is very good. Oh, <laughs> the therapists is very good. All right. <laughs> You know, I mean, we're we're there. There are not enough therapists, especially mm-hmm. in, in places like the middle of the United States, like where we live. Um, most of the therapists are, or a large concentration of them, are on the coast. But yet, we yet we have a lot of need here. What has happened prior to the pandemic, and is has become especially a steep rise during the pandemic, is mental health problems mm-hmm. among young people. Mm-hmm. Suicide rates, especially among a very young population, had have skyrocketed, they, oh. and that was happening before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Oh, it yeah. was already going up. It was like this before the pandemic. It was kind of slowly going up. Oh, not even slowly. People thought it was really rampant back then, but then when the pandemic hit, it just skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot, a lot of depression and anxiety, a lot of suicide and other mental health problems. So I, you know, I'm I'm worried in some ways um, that that we we need to pick pick up mental health mm-hmm. uh, in a in a far quicker way than we're doing. And we need to we need to fund mental health. We need to think about initiatives that will will improve mental health and not uh, uh, take it back a step. And I should say, you know, much of the 
um, conversation about policing uh, in the United States has been ha has been veering in that direction. That we need social workers out mm -hmm. there on a team. Yeah. We need people who can deal with mental health crises. We need people who can deal with drug addiction because what's happening when we're hauling people off to prison is we're making the situation worse for, for those people and for their children and families. So I think yeah. it's more attention to it is good. And I can put in a plug <laughs> along those notes for the police academy at Lincoln University. Have you heard about it? Yes, I have. Uh-huh. Gary Hill, yeah. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. Chief Hill and Joe Steenbergen have, have worked really hard on this police academy, which they started up there. And I had a conversation with Joe the other day, and he said, we want psychology majors to come into police academy because we want the mental health emphasis mm -hmm. on policing. Um, we want to make sure that people are trained in coming from diverse backgrounds, not just coming from criminal justice majors. Good so, point. you know, so he's looking, they're looking for diverse backgrounds and they're really looking very carefully about the issue of, of race and discrimination in policing. And so I think it's a fantastic program and I think a, a really great new initiative at Lincoln University. So, yeah. And what you do is you get your degree, you get your bachelor's degree at the same time you complete police academy. And the police academy is uh, one semester. It's It counts as credits toward Lincoln University. It's upper division credits uh, toward your graduation in any major. Oh, and wow. so it's a fantastic mm -hmm. program. And then you are ready to become a police officer should you choose to do so. Um, but you also got the bachelor's degree, which is not, mm -hmm. not necessary for police officers in Missouri. But if you do get the bachelor's degree, then you can also move up and get promoted quite easily or more easily within the system. Sounds like a, a perfect match for liberal studies majors that uh, Absolutely. have different emphasis areas. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, may, and even if they don't decide to go into policing, it changes mm -hmm. who is at the table. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It changes who is in the classrooms. Yeah, so, I mean, and you get the credits for it. You get the college credit for it. So you can use it toward any degree or any career. Right. You know what I mean? mm -hmm. But it gives us, I think that, you know, we talk and talk about community policing, but in fact, there's the police and there's the community and they're quite separated out. So I think mm -hmm. Lincoln University is doing a very good job right now with a really innovative program in, in incorporating community with policing in a real way and taking in majors from all areas of the university and, and giving them training in policing. And it also gives those police, those, those police academy classrooms a far greater diversity within the classroom. And I'm not just talking about um, race diversity. I'm, I'm also talking in diversity in ideas and backgrounds. And right. Cultural in much a broader way. Yeah. In a much broader sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I'm thinking back to when I was first in college. Uh, mental health had a lot of money coming to it, and there were all kinds of places to go to get mental health services. And then along came the 70s or maybe the early 80s, and that money shifted. The places shut down, and, and yeah. money went to prisons, and money went to... Police yeah, forces and, and largely and, to prisons. Yeah, yeah and so they expected prisons to do mental health work, and and, and they were not equipped to do not so. Not equipped. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it made the mental health conditions worse. Oh yeah. 
you know. And so now. Arrested for things like, you know, trespassing when they were floridly delusional and they didn't know where they were. And, you know, I mean, then, and then from there, they didn't cooperate when they would get incarcerated and because of mental illness problems. And then that ends up, you know, being a. Uh, uh, they start getting charged with more and more things, and all of a sudden they're right. well entrenched into the system. And homelessness, uh, another facet that kind of plays into this uh, yes, same absolutely. thing. And see, that was where, you know, it was, so, you know, in the history of mental health, what we saw was that, you know, initially people with major mental health problems like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder were institutionalized mm -hmm. until about in the mid-1950s, 1960s, where we started to get drugs that were really effective against delusions and hallucinations and some of the serious mental health symptoms. Once we got those drugs that were really effective, um, they, they, many, many people moved out of the institutions and we call that deinstitutionalization. So we had places like Fulton State Hospital that were completely packed with people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and then they just moved them on out right mm -hmm. and they were able to to live uh, many times on their own and many times in um in mental health centers at the, in the residential facilities yeah. yes and mm -hmm. that's what you were talking about when you were young and you were seeing all of this right. mental health activity come up but what happened is that the funding at the community level kept dropping and dropping and dropping oh. well what happened to those folks is they went off of their meds they ended up on the streets and they got arrested. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, monitoring of medications and everything is really, really important for serious mental illness. So with a little bit of support, we could have done things, I think, a little bit better. But defunding, you know, and if you look right now at community mental health, it continues to have very poor funding. Right. You know, and then, you know, police ended up getting stuck and prisons ended up being stuck with you know not having the resources and yet housing a lot of people with serious mental illness so mm -hmm. now we're kind of trying to come back from that but it's a hard road hard road that. and then on top of that we're getting this surge of mental health problems with young people mm -hmm. we don't know how that's going to pan out maybe that's a developmental stage maybe that's a covid thing you know mm -hmm. largely and we'll kind of come back from that if we can get this pandemic but you know i mean there comes a point where we we really have to you know kind of turn backwards and mm -hmm. say what are we, what are we going to do with mental health and i think policing now is the impetus for that mm -hmm. and i think that's been a very good thing and mm -hmm. I, i'm i'm very happy to see lincoln at the forefront of that i think it's something we're doing really well right now you know and and what better place for police academy to do innovative work but an hbcu you know excellent yeah and possibly it will just be a prototype that then gets to uh, go to scale uh, around the country already it's happened already mm -hmm. it's happened oh good good yeah mm -hmm. they're setting up uh you know a uh, memorandum of understanding with all kinds of different institutions right now wonderful to, to expand our police academy so mm -hmm. it's been really exciting yeah have you personally been uh, asked or any of your colleagues in psychology asked to be on like a board or something of advisors to, to this academy? I haven't personally, no, but um, uh, they're, they're, I know they do have quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, diverse advising from a mm -hmm. bunch of different areas. And, and certainly I do talk to, you know, my colleagues, Chief mm -hmm. Hill 
and Joe Steinberg and who are you know there uh, Joe is in my department you know he's in criminal justice uh huh oh great yeah mm -hmm. to talk to him so yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we do, you know, it is an academic institution. It's not, you know, that's not the way police academies have been, you mm -hmm. know. Right. They've, been, they've, they've, you know, you had an, uh, an agenda or a, a curriculum that was set up by the state mm -hmm. and they were run outside of academic institutions. Yeah. So it's nice to see it run within an academic institution because you do have, you know, a lot of intellectual diversity going yeah. on within yeah. institutions. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And again, well, that uh, connection between police and community is much far greater. Yeah, Dr. Mayor Argetti, we're uh, we're coming down to the wire here. Uh, do you have a, a few uh, things to say to our listeners about uh, life, about uh, <laughs> mental health, about uh, yeah, well, how to keep it together? How to keep it together? I, <laughs> I wish I had the answers for that, <laughs> but I don't. Uh, you know, I it's it, we all have our own ways of 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 keeping it together, right? Um, I think finding, so. You know, I mean, one of the things we're seeing, you know, with young people today is a a lot of. Um, social isolation and loneliness. And I tell you what, when I, I talked to our, my freshman yesterday, I said, you you can hide in your phone, you know, or you can get out on campus and you can say hi to people and spread your joy around. And many mm -hmm. times that anxiety can become crippling. But, uh, you know, I was, I think some of the best advice you can get is, you know, go to the cafeteria today and sit <laughs> down and talk to somebody. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's not high school anymore. You can do it by yourself, you know, as an independent person. You don't have to have friends to go with. You mm -hmm. can go and say hi to somebody. And there are many, many places for us to do that. What's happening to a lot of people because of COVID is is the, a lot of uh, social social isolation and that we know is not good for us as humans mm -hmm. we've got to stay in contact with others and do mm -hmm. so safely mm -hmm. do so safely you yeah. know um with masks and with distancing mm -hmm. but keep doing it yeah. you know yeah. keep doing it as much as we can wonderful and online stuff can sometimes substitute <laughs> <some of> that. <laughs> but i'm not sure it can substitute for all of it it's got no to. no well thank you my uh friend and colleague. Uh, it's been great to pick your mind uh, as to what you've been doing. And uh, listeners, I hope you uh, can check on Mara. And that would be by just uh, Googling M-A-R-A and spell your last name for us, Mara. It is A-R-U-G-U-E-T-E. And my and my email is just my last name a r u g u e t e m for Mara at lincolnu.edu. So anybody who's out there listening and and feels like they want to have a conversation, feel free to email me. Wonderful. Yeah, and Dick, I just want to say it's great to see you again. If only by Zoom, it's wonderful <laughs> to see your face and, and hear your voice. And I appreciate you contacting me. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for your work. And listeners, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. So please, uh, leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. So take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs>